The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by the good people at Stoneman's Book Room. And today we're going to do something we haven't done in a little while and we're going to look at two novels and we're going to hear readings from them by the authors themselves. And the first one will be This Signal Line, which is out now and it was the winner of the Unpublished Manuscript Prize at the Tasmanian Premier's Literary Awards. And The Signal Line, the author is Brendan Colley and here's a bit about the book. Brothers Gio and Wes are testing their relationship now that their parents have passed away. Gio and Wes rarely agree on anything, especially not the sale of the Hobart family home. Gio needs the money to finance his musical career in Italy. For Wes, the house represents the memory of their father and what it means to live an honest working life. But then a ghost train appears in Hobart, often on the tram tracks that once existed, along with the Swedish man who has been pursuing it for 40 years. Everyone, it seems, is chasing their dreams. Or are they running from the truth? Brendan Colley, this is a bit about the author now, was born in South Africa. After graduating with a degree in education, he taught in the UK and Japan for 11 years before settling down in Australia in 2007. He lives in Hobart with his bookseller wife. And here is Brendan Colley reading an excerpt. As I crossed Brisbane Street, I gleaned the faint sound of guitar and vocals from the mall a couple of blocks ahead. I was annoyed, as I'd hoped to get straight into a busking session, but my focus was swiftly drawn to the present when a hand yanked me through a door. What the? Thank you for coming on time, Labaskachny said. Where's your boot? What? Your brother. He's... I have no idea. Never mind. He nudged me into the bookstore. I stumbled down onto the landing and came face to face with a serene-looking man leaning against a bookshelf. He couldn't have appeared more disinterested in meeting me. This is the lower rank of the two, Labaskachny said to him, and to me, this is the Swede, the ghost train hunter. There's obviously been, I started... The Swede raised a hand and looked away. I don't work with anyone. Something about him made me stare. It wasn't his offish manner, and it wasn't the clothes. Har-waisted, broad-full trousers with suspenders. It was his aura, a presence. He was the kind of person who would have seemed more at home in a black-and-white silent film than present day anywhere. Labaskachny leaned forward and whispered to him. The passengers have been detained. They'll have information about the train's interior. I have nothing to offer you, I interjected. You were there, Labaskachny said, shooting me a look. I know this for a fact. You communicated with them. Where did you get your information? 
Ignoring me, he turned back to the Swede. You've been chasing the train for 40 years. Now it's here, and you only know it's here because I contacted you. I want for you to intercept it in my territory. There are witnesses. They can assist you. This is important. It was disconcerting to hear a South African refer to Tasmania as his territory. The Swede turned his gaze to me and my instrument case. Violin? Viola. Professional? I nodded. Play something. Even more than his candor, I was impressed by his indifference to the situation in which we found ourselves. Yet there was more chance of me boarding a ghost train than playing classical music in a conspiracy bookstore. I'm sorry, I'm of no use to you. I nodded out of respect and turned away. Don't be like your brother, Labaskachny called after me. I didn't look back. You've been on your own too long, I heard him say to the Swede. You'll never find it if you keep refusing help. The guitar singer I'd heard before was still playing when I got to Elizabeth Street Mall. From an empty bench, I watched him finish a rendition of Better Be Home Soon. There was something about him that reminded me of Alessia. When she busked, people were moved to clap and tap their feet. That's what I saw with this young musician. He played as if everyone who walked by wanted to hear his song, and in return a steady stream of coins dropped into his case. As soon as the session ended, I wandered over. Nice set. Thanks, mate. You switching in? I was hoping to. I don't want to step on anyone's toes. All yours. He smiled, scooped up his case, and walked off. I dropped some coins into my viola case and, after a quick tune check, slipped into Death of Juliet from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, my favourite piece to perform unaccompanied. With closed eyes I drifted into a space where the soul relaxes and music rises and it wasn't long before I heard the happy tinkle of coins landing at my feet. Five minutes later I lowered my bow and opened my eyes. The Swedish ghost train hunter stood staring less than two metres from me. I recoiled. His expression softened. As I watch you play, it occurs to me you sound how I feel when I chase my train. His complete disregard for what others thought of him was intriguing. I could only dream of possessing the same casual self-belief. You arrived this morning, I said. He gestured to the Gladstone bag next to his feet. Where are you staying? I asked. The Swede sighed. Labuskachny offered for me to sleep on the floor in his bookstore, but I don't want to do that. Not because I do not like floors. I have spent more nights sleeping on park benches and floors than I have in beds. But if I stay with him, I will be obligated. And with my train, I cannot be obligated. I have a spare room at my house. I immediately wasn't sure why I'd suggested it, perhaps to help someone out on the road like many had done for me, or perhaps to insert a buffer between me and Wes. It was the Swede's turn to show surprise. That is very kind of you, but probably I must decline. You charge more than I can afford, I am sure. Would you work for board? If it fits around my train, I can work. Can you paint? He smiled. 
I have painted more houses than I have travelled on trains. This was turning out to be the most productive busking session of my life. I need someone to paint the outside of my house. Do you have materials? When I shook my head, he said, Good. My experience will save you money. But I chase my train at night and I research in the afternoons. You would be satisfied with two hours a morning? Sure. He extended his hand. The Swede placed his Gladstone bag in the corner of the sitting room and settled into one of the sofas. He didn't ask to see his room and seemed unfazed by our father's rubbish scattered about. Sitting across from him, I watched as he retrieved a leather tobacco pouch from his jacket pockets and proceeded to roll a smoke. He exuded the same ethereal quality I'd noticed in the bookstore, as though his energy was contained so that when he moved he didn't disturb the air. As silly as it might sound, I thought perhaps he had taken on the characteristics of his ghost train. As this impression of him came together in my mind, he lit up and I realised it wasn't tobacco, it was a joint. He offered it to me. I don't know your name, I said, taking a drag. Sten. I passed back the joint. Geo. Like in the word geography? Exactly like in the word geography. It means earth. Sten means stone. Earth and stone. Could there be any doubt? Car lights swept through the window. That's my brother, Wes. His name doesn't mean anything. Ignore him. The front door opened and Wes rounded into the sitting room. He regarded Sten. What's going on? This is Sten, the Swedish ghost train hunter. Wes sniffed the air. Is that weed? He's painting the house for board. I only work mornings, Sten said, taking a hit. I chase my train the rest of the time. Does he know that? Do you know that I'm a police officer? For a second, Sten was confused, but then he took the joint from his lips and offered it to my brother. Sorry, I forget my manners sometimes. Wes's face tightened. I tensed for the reaction, but something in him relaxed. Ah, fuck it. He took the joint, slumped into the recliner, waving a finger in the air. There'll be no discussion of the train, is that clear? Good, Sten said. I prefer to work alone. Wes took a hit, passed him the joint, then slid a fresh ashtray across the coffee table. Use this one, not the other two. He glanced at me. Keep an eye on that. Sten tapped the cone into the ashtray. Wes watched him for a minute before getting up to leave the room. I took out my phone and messaged Alessia. Doing fine. Start rehearsing Sunday. Call next week. Geo. Help yourself, Sten said, pushing the pouch to me. I sat forward and rolled one for myself. I've been thinking about what you said before. What did I say? That I looked how you felt when you chased the train. It's true. That is what I thought. My dream is to play for a major orchestra. Attending auditions feels like I'm chasing something. Maybe our dreams are the same. I wanted them to be the same, but his pursuit was was paired with the knees that had yet to mature in my own. I don't know. You seem very calm. He relit his joints and handed me the lighter. 
I am calm because I know with certainty that I will find my train and I am not in a rush. What will you do when you find it? Board it, of course. It was the matter of factness that moved me. I think they are the same, he continued. The way you play your music, I think they are. But there is a simple test to know for sure. Oh, yeah? Who is the most important person in your life? Don't tell me, but you have someone, I suppose. My mind flashed onto Alessia. I do. Could you leave this person if there was a possibility of achieving your dream and doing it alone was the difference between having it and not having it? This was the right question, but it implied a coldness I found difficult to own up to. I had already abandoned one person, but that had been to flee my father rather than chase after something. So you had the conviction to do so, I said. My train moves too quickly. I have never been in one place long enough to have someone to leave. His response dismayed me. A light is flashing in the other room, he said. I glanced around to see a sporadic glow emanating from our father's study at the other end of the house. I got up and crossed the rooms to crack open the door and peer through. Dad's lamp, as Wes and I called it, was flickering wildly on the study desk. It was one of those lights with three levels of brightness, so that when you touched it once it was dim, twice it was bright, three times it was brightest, and the fourth touch turned it off. Stem came to stand behind me, and we watched as the light came on by itself, slowly getting brighter. All at once it jumped to its brightest level before switching off. After a few seconds it came back on, flickering up and down between the levels, then fading out. What's going on? Wes asked, walking out of the bathroom with a towel draped around his waist, steam swirling behind him. Dad's lamp is acting weirdly, I said. He looked into the study. It's off. Wait for it. Within a few seconds, the lamp came on and shot to its brightest level and blacked out. Then it came on at its lowest level and grew gradually brighter. Damned electrics, he said. I shook my head. It's the globe. Someone's trying to communicate with you, Stem said, the joint dangling from his mouth. Wes and I looked at him. He shrugged. Ghosts and ghost trains are different, otherwise I would ask what it wants. Wes chuckled and turned away. Just unplug it. I retrieved the lamp and brought it into the sitting room. Stem came in behind me and went to a sofa. Wes poured three glasses of whiskey at the liquor cabinet. I placed the lamp on the coffee table, careful not to displace our father's rubbish. Why do you call it Dad's lamp? Stem asked. He got it from some antique shop. I forget where. I asked Wes, do you remember? New Norfolk. Yeah, that's right. A long time ago, I said to Sten. Then it began its rounds. First his bedside table for a spell, his reading lamp in here, and finally his study lamp. It is definitely him, Sten said. Wes handed out the drinks. I don't want to talk about my father even more than I don't want to talk about. I leapt to my feet, whiskey splashing to the carpet. Holy shit! The lamp flickered to its brightest level again, then switched rapidly between the three levels. The cord lay curled on the floor with the plug exposed. Sten dragged on his joint. As I said, he is here. 
Five minutes later, we sat back in the living room, minus the lamp, which had been relocated to Mum's studio. Wes and I had charged Sten with the responsibility of transporting it and watched through the kitchen window as he had carried it up the stony path, the globe flickering violently in protest. He had disappeared into the studio, then tracked back down while the windows behind him flashed like lightning. I wonder which of us he's trying to communicate with, I pondered. There isn't a train and there are no ghosts, Wes said flatly. Sten was lying back on the sofa with his eyes closed. After a beat, he said, I would prefer not to say. And there we had a reading from the novel The Signal Line, out now via Transit Loan, and the author was Brendan Colley. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And now we're going to hear another piece of work from another new novel. This novel is called The Good Captain, and it's also by Transit Lounge, and the author is Sean Rebin. And I'm going to read to you a bit about this novel now. Set in the near future... During a time of plummeting fish stocks, toxic algae blooms, and jellyfish swarms, the good captain follows a group of radical environmentalists committed to a mission of extreme civil disobedience against the powers threatening to destroy the last of the world's marine life. Led by the wild Rena, born and raised by the ocean, the characterful crew engages in a high seas drama that contains all the thrill of a cat and mouse seafaring classic, while at the same time offering a timely warning for the political classes that their negligence will not go unpunished. And here is a bit about the author, Sean Rabin. Born in Hobart, Tasmania, Sean has worked as a cook, script reader, copy editor, freelance journalist and librarian. He has lived in Ireland, Italy, London and New York and now resides in Sydney, Australia. And here now, with much thanks to his publisher Transit Lounge, is Sean Rabin reading from his novel, his second novel, The Good Captain. Chapter 7 Christopher lowered his binoculars and scanned the ocean's surface. All trace of the morning's slow rolling swell, bottle green under an open sky, had disappeared. In its stead were short muscular waves with a dark metallic sheen that pushed across Mama's bow and threatened to crash over her deck before the day's end. It was not the traditional season for storms, but then again such a thing no longer really existed. Weather patterns repeating themselves at the same time of year, each and every year, was an idea that belonged to the past. Nature was in flux. The sea was no longer the realm of routine and experience. Where ocean currents had once been cold, they now swam warm. Where they once flowed fast, they had begun to slow. Maps and charts compiled over hundreds of years were either obsolete or continually being redrawn. Whole islands had vanished underwater, while countless reputable sea lanes had grown either too turbulent to traverse or too encumbered with lost shipping containers lurking below their surface. And as for the shape of coastlines... Massive erosion and submersion had made them anything but established fact. Violent storms attacked harbours and tossed breakwater rocks hundreds of feet into the air. 
Lighthouses that had stood for more than two centuries vanished overnight, leaving foundation platforms and photographic records as the only reminder of their former presence. Whirlpools had become powerful enough to swallow aircraft carriers. Rogue waves were now so large they could be tracked from space and christened with names. After decades of believing the ocean had been explored and tamed, it was once again unknown and dangerous, a realm where all traditional rhythms appeared to have been broken and no new predictability had arisen to take their place. Standing in the crow's nest, Christopher tongued a popcorn husk wedged between his second and third molar and estimated that the trawler was at least 160 metres long, big enough to distinguish her scars of rust as well as the white stripe that had been painted along her hull more than 20 years ago. Mama's crew had recently agreed that 2,000 tonnes was their new minimum. Any vessel smaller was not worth the risk to themselves or their cargo. But even at such a distance, it was clear the trawler was big enough to warrant their attention. Did she belong to the Jensen fleet? Or the Trewan group? Despite her size, he knew the trawler was still too small for either lineage. Jensen vessels were always a minimum of 250 metres long, and Trewan vessels rarely hunted without an escort of decommissioned battleships. No name or number meant she was probably an independent contractor sailing stateless until the best price for her catch had been confirmed. A flag of convenience would then be raised and a name painted along her stern as she changed course and sailed towards her new port of origin. He finally dislodged the popcorn husk and cut it in half with his central incisors. The longer Christopher watched, the more he thought the trawler sat heavy in the water. Fuel might have made her that way had she just set out, but being so far from land it was more likely a combination of nets kilometres long and a hold full of fish already on ice. Her ballast also looked off. Either the ship's self-correct was malfunctioning or one had not been installed. He suspected the latter and assumed that below her decks a skeleton crew was struggling to secure equipment against the rapidly deteriorating weather conditions. He had seen inside too many floating factories to think this one would be any different. Behind her still hull and bulkheads was no doubt a frigid world of reconditioned machines held together with cost-saving measures that could lethally malfunction at any moment. Open chutes spiralling and weaving to funnel fish onto fast-moving conveyor belts that hurried past sorting stations where the gloved hands of poorly paid workers separated the small from the smaller and discarded the large pieces of plastic that inevitably came up with every catch. Their mind-numbing work accompanied by a noise of rattling steel and rotating cylinders so relentlessly loud that it drowned out the sound of the sea and air so thick with the stench of stale brine and ammoniated flesh that no matter how wide doors and vents were left open, it refused to be blown away. The fish would then be shoved into the sleeves of an industrial freezer and later re-emerge as uniform blocks of ice that another conveyor belt would carry through an automated process of being wrapped in plastic and boxed and labelled and strapped and transported to a temperature-controlled storeroom manned by men who worked crushingly long hours and hated the ship, its captain, the fish and themselves, or the small part of themselves they could still recognise. The trawler switched on its floodlights and Christopher realised she was about to haul in her nets. It was sooner than he had expected, but likely the skipper wanted his catch squared away before being hit by the brunt of the storm. 
had or had Mama finally been sighted and preparations were being made for a quick getaway? Did the captain notice that his radio was malfunctioning and IV was down? That all satellite guidance had gone dead and the call from his superiors with a price and a destination had not come through at its appointed hour? He then remembered that the captain was not being paid to think. As much as anyone else aboard that trawler, his job was just to follow orders. It was not his ship. Satellites found the fish, and someone on land would program their course. The captain knew nothing about the sea or what it might do. The skills for which he had been hired were more aligned with understanding people, knowing which threats of violence motivated them to work most effectively, and recognising who was likely to complain about wages or food or living conditions or ask too many questions when a friend disappeared overboard. In short, the captain had been hired because all he cared about was the money he would have at the end of the voyage, and the new car it might buy him, or the deep plug surgery so at last he could feel the IV beneath his skin like the people in China and Australia and America. Or maybe the captain was just trying to pay off his home or feed his family or ensure his children had clothes to wear to school. Whatever the truth, it did not matter to Christopher. There were no valid reasons to work aboard a trawler, and anyone who did, from the skipper to the deckhands, would receive neither his compassion nor his understanding. He descended from the crow's nest to join Mel on the monkey deck. A few hours of undisturbed solitude high above Mama was exactly what he had needed, a respite from a crew he knew too well and could interpret too easily and who were still struggling to come to terms with the loss of Roop. Though most had sought to manage their grief by avoiding gossip and keeping to their cabins, it was obvious what they were thinking and feeling, because he was feeling and thinking the same things. Was the cargo worth it? And would the sadness ever end? As he jumped from the third last rung, he acknowledged how this was the second occasion in as many days that he and Mel had stood together on the monkey deck. This time, however, they were not waiting for a car to drive past, breathing in the rank smell of flares that had just been doused in the Huon River, watching Salka and Buddy crouch beside their vehicles, hidden behind shrubs and trees, ready to discharge their weapons. There would be no sighs of relief as the car sped by without slowing down, no theorising about whether Mama had been glimpsed and if two and two might be put together when the news broke the following day about the cargo being stolen. This time on the monkey deck, there was only the trawler. She's big enough, he said, as he joined Mel at the handrail. There we had Sean Rabin reading from his novel, The Good Captain, which is out now via Transit Lounge. And a huge thank you to the authors. Uh, We had Sean Rabin and Brendan Colley for, for reading to us from their new books and also to the publisher, for Transit Lounge, um, the new publisher, sorry, the publisher Transit Lounge for allowing us to do so. And thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in today. Uh, you can find all older episodes of The Quiet Carriage on all good podcast platforms. But today, we are out of time. I have been Paul J. Laverty. You can find me, I'm under all the socials, under that name. And until next time, keep Reading.